Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 to 15. And this is, of course, the final portion of the Lord's Prayer. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 to 15. I will begin uh, reading, however, at verse 9. This is God's Word. Listen to it. Pray them like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we come to you this morning and we pray once again for the illumination and the enlightening power of your Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would guide us as we consider this passage of your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would cause us, Lord, to listen attentively. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And I think that most of us know, most of us understand, most of us have felt what it means to be in debt. People who claim to be authorities on money, of which I am not one, they say that there is good debt and there is bad debt. They say that good debt is debt uh, like a mortgage on a house. The bad debt is debt on credit cards, wrecked up, maxed out, and those kinds of things. But whether it is true, whether it's true that there is good debt and bad debt, whether you uh, should hold a mortgage or not, the fact of the matter is, is that you know if you've experienced that, if you've had it, that it is burdensome. We can feel debt in a palpable way. I can remember when I was in college. I was probably in my uh, third year of college, and I got my first credit card. And I had a limit of about $500, and I maxed it out quickly. I think I bought a stereo or something like that. And I immediately felt this weight on my shoulders. I didn't have a job. <laughs> How was I going to pay this? I was just a, a poor college student at that point. Well, $500 now sounds quaint, doesn't it? $500 of debt sounds like nothing for most of us because we're used to a lot more. We're used to carrying a, a quite a bit more. But at the time, it felt like I was carrying a backpack filled with lead weights. The weight of it was oppressive. For most of us here, you know that feeling. You are no stranger to death. The American household carries a, a dramatic, a, a, a huge load of debt. And the problem of indebtedness is not unique to you. It's not new to us. It's not new to this generation. It goes back throughout the history of God's people. And you can see this if you look through the Old Testament. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, you'll see that in, in that chapter, God establishes a, a, a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, God says that slaves will be set free. Every seventh year, God says that those who are creditors 
will let their debtors free from their debt. And you see this in other places in God's Word. In the year of Jubilee, the same thing happens, but on a grander scale. And in the year of Jubilee, which happens every seventh Sabbath year, every 49 to 50 years, God allows the land which has been sold to other people to revert back to its original owner. His desire is that the tribe and the clan who's originally uh, had that inheritance right, that it would go back to them, that they would hold on to their land, that they would, it would return to them. When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he is not speaking about God forgiving some sort of financial debt that we hold. He's speaking about something else, isn't he? He's speaking about the debt that we owe to God because of our sin. And I think you can see that it is a small step from the weight of financial debt to the weight of the debt of sin. They both burden us down. They both weigh us down in our walk, in our life. And if we confess our sins, if we confess this sin, if we go to God and we ask Him to forgive our debt of sin, He is faithful and just. He will listen to us. He will hear our prayers. And He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, I would ask you to think on this as we work our way through these verses this morning. For all who believe in Jesus Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, our sins are forgiven, and we are delivered from evil. We have victory over the evil one. Again, for all who believe in Jesus Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, our sins are forgiven. And we have victory over evil. We have been delivered from this power of sin. I've divided this uh, passage up into two sections with one short uh, subsection toward the end. The first section is deep in death. We'll look at verses 12 and then 14 and 15. The second section is the hour of trial, which is verse 13. And then I'm going to spend just a brief time looking at the doxology, uh, which we pray every month, but which is not present in modern translation of this passage. Again, deep in death, verses 12 and 14 and 15. The hour of trial, verse 13, and then we'll spend a little bit of time looking at the doxology. So first, deep in death. In verse 11, Jesus moved from the petitions focusing on God to the personal petitions that we ask as believers. He, he goes from uh, focusing on God, that his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, to turn inward. He asks us, he permits us, he invites us to pray for our personal needs. And so he says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. So now in verses 12 and 13, he says, forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. He shifts here to spiritual needs, where he's focused in verse 11 on physical needs. And so he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, just as verse 11 shows that all of our daily physical needs may only, can only be met by our Heavenly Father. So this verse shows us that our spiritual needs can only be met by Him as well. Ultimately, all of your physical needs, whether you need bread, whether you need clothing, shelter, all of your physical needs are met by your Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter whether you have a job or not. God is the ultimate source of those blessings. Well, spiritually, the same is true. God meets your needs, your spiritual needs, in the same way. Your understanding 
of God's forgiveness will be directly proportional to your understanding of your own sin. So this is an important thing to keep in mind. If you denigrate or downgrade your own sin, if you just play it down and say it's nothing, then your understanding of God's forgiveness will be nothing. Now, as we've already seen, Jesus uses the word death to mean sin here, doesn't he? The Aramaic word which Jesus would have used as he preached the sermon, and he spoke this, the Aramaic word means both death and sin. And so you see, if you read the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel in, in chapter 11, you'll see that in Luke, he translates the word using the Greek word for sin. Here, Matthew makes the choice to translate the word using the Greek word for death. Well, what is your own understanding of your death? How do you understand what it means to be in death to God? What is your view of your own sin? Many of you have heard of the Puritan pastor Thomas Watson. He once said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Well, what does he mean by this? He means that if your own sin does not repulse you, if it does not uh, raise up a stench to you, then you will never understand You'll never be able to savor Christ fully. You'll never appreciate what he's done for you. And so the term death here, the way that Matthew uses this term, is very helpful for us to understand what it means uh, to have sin, to understand our own sin. Sin is abstract. Sin is difficult for us to, to grasp. It's a, it's a concept. Death is something that you can feel. You've experienced it. You understand what it means. And if you see your debts this small, if you see them as something that you can repay, that you can work them off with a little, a little effort on your own, if that's the way you do your debt, then you will not feel the need for God's forgiveness, will you? You won't feel like you need it. You won't feel like you need God's grace. But this is not the biblical view of debt. This is not what God teaches you and me about our debt to Him. What does the Bible teach about sin? What does it teach us? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 teaches that everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Psalm 14, verse 3 says, There is none who does good. No, not one. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, or good works, are like a polluted garment. They're like filthy rags in the sight of God. The most minuscule amount of debt that you owe to God in terms of your sin is mountainous in His sight. Because He is holy. Because He is righteous. What may be small to you is a mountain to Him. And you cannot repay the debt that you owe to God. You may be rich in dollars. You may be rich in material things. But your currency is no good with God. It will get you nowhere. And so the debt that you owe to God can never be repaid by anything that you do, no matter what you do, no matter how many quote-unquote good deeds you perform. You can never repay what you owe. You must understand that the smallest sin you commit, the, the widest of white lies that you commit, is great enough to throw you in hell forever. It is great enough for you to feel the wrath of God for all eternity. This is the weight of sin. But even before your first sin, even before you sin for the very first time as a tiny baby, what 
about him. What does it say? I was conceived in sin. In iniquity, my mother bore me. You are sinful. You are in a, in an estate of sin by very virtue of being a son or a daughter of Adam. And so you cannot escape it. You owe a mountainous debt. You owe a massive amount of debt that you can never repay from the moment of your conception. Well, this is because, as we've already mentioned, Adam first saddled us with a tremendous amount of debt. It saddled us with a debt that we as his descendants can never pay back to the Lord. And when we add to it, when we commit sins, it makes it increasingly impossible for us to repay what we owe to God. Well, if you understand this about your sin and about your debt, you'll have a much deeper understanding and a much deeper respect and appreciation for what it means to be forgiven. If, in your estimation, you have been forgiven very little, as Jesus says in Luke 7, 47, you will love little. But if you have been forgiven much, if you understand how much you have been forgiven, then you will love much. And you will be great, uh, grateful to God for what he has done to you. And your love will not stop with God. Your love will extend to your neighbor. In the process of loving God, you will love your neighbor. And this is the point of the second half of verse 12. Jesus says here to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive, as we have also forgiven our debtors. So what does he mean this? What does he mean by this? Does, does this mean that we earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others of their debts to us? Is that what it teaches? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Our forgiveness is based on the grace of God, not on us, not on anything we do, not even on forgiving other people of the debts that they owe to us. 1 John 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. Likewise, we forget because he first forgave us. If God forgives because we forgive each other, uh, because we forgive others, if God forgives us as a result of our forgiving other people, then that would make us the initiator of our own forgiveness. And that is simply not what the Bible teaches. The scripture makes it clear that God's forgiveness for our sins is completely an act of grace. That it is unmerited by us. That it is brought about by His love for us and not our love for Him. Jesus paid all of our debt with His blood on the cross. And because of that, we owe nothing to Him. So what does it mean? What does it mean when Jesus teaches us to pray this petition? As we also have forgiven our debtors. He means by this petition, that our forgiveness of others and our forgiveness by God are inextricably linked together. The two of those, uh, two of these types of forgiveness go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. They are so linked together that if one is missing, the other is not present. If you are unwilling or unable to forgive your brother, then you have not received the forgiveness of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. This petition, petition of forgiveness, is 
the Lord Jesus. And it's the only petition of these six in the Lord's Prayer that he returns to after the prayer is completed. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus comes back to this. He takes up the issue again. And he makes it clear that the link between God's forgiveness of our sins and our forgiveness of others are inseparably bound together. The fact of the matter is, if you have been forgiven much, you will forgive others. It will happen naturally as a part of who you are. First John chapter 4, verses 20 to 21 Say, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. If we find ourselves unable or unwilling to forgive our brother for a sin that he has committed against us, then Scripture calls us to examine ourselves to determine if we truly have faith in Jesus Christ. If we can't forgive, we must question whether we have truly been forgiven. Let's turn now and look at verse 13, the hour of trial. As in the year of Jubilee, God grants forgiveness of our debt, but he also delivers us from our enslavement. And he makes sure that we stay that way. He makes sure that we stay Verse 13 says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the sixth and final petition of the Lord's Prayer. And it acknowledges the fact that, that simply because our sins are forgiven doesn't mean that we have nothing to be concerned about in the world. Your sins are forgiven in Christ if you believe in Him. But that's not the end of the story, is it? You still have to live your life. You have to walk and make your way through this world. And the enemy seeks to devour you. The enemy lies in wait like a lion, seeking to tear you apart. What does this petition ask for? It asks that God would protect you, that he would keep you, that he would deliver you. It reminds us that we have an enemy who seeks to destroy our souls, but more importantly, it reminds us that we have a deliverer, that we have a God who is our strong shield, that he is our mighty power. That he defends us against our enemy. But this petition also raises a question, doesn't it? Probably raises a question in your own mind. Is Jesus saying that we should pray for God not to lead us into, into temptation as if he would otherwise? Is that what we're praying here? Are we asking God not to lead us into temptation because if we don't pray this prayer, he'll lead us into temptation? What does James chapter 1 verse 13 say? It says that God is not the author of sin. It says that he does not tempt. He does not tempt us. He cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. And so understanding what Jesus means for us to pray in relation to James 1.13 has been debated since the early church. The question has been asked. Well, the first lesson of this petition teaches us is that God is sovereign. It teaches us that God oversees everything. That he is sovereign over everything that takes place. Even though he himself does not tempt us, everything that takes place in our lives happens according to his plan. The buck truly stops with God. So if you are seeking not to be led into temptation, if you are seeking to walk through this life without falling into sin and temptation, who do you pray to? Who do you go to? 
You don't pray to the enemy. You pray to God. You go to Him. Because He is the only one who can, can answer your prayers. He is the only one who can defend you. Now, it should be pointed out in this, uh, in this verse that the word translated lead can also be translated bring in or carry in. And it is used only seven other times in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples of how it's used in the New Testament. It's used in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, when those men are seeking to deliver, to get their paralytic friend to Jesus. And because of the crowds that are surrounding Jesus in the house, they're trying to bring him in, the passage says. But they're unable to, so they lower him through the roof. They're trying to get into Jesus inside the house. Jesus uses the word again in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, where he says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should say. When they bring you before them. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, where he says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And it's also used in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11, which says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, what's in common between each of these uses of this word? In each of these occurrences, the word is used in some sort of immersive sense. It's, it's used in the sense of bringing something from the outside to the inside. The uses convey the idea of being delivered over to something else. In the case of the paralytic, they sought to deliver him over to Jesus. In the case of Paul, speaking to Timothy, he says you were brought into the world with nothing. You were delivered over into the world with not a thing. Well, the word is also used in literature outside the New Testament. And it's used to mean the delivery of a message. Well, the Bible promises in numerous places that we will go through trials, that we will go through tests, that we will experience temptations. That trials and tests are another way to translate this word that's translated temptation in this verse. But the prayer in this petition is that God will keep us from being completely delivered over to the test or the temptation. God does test us in the sense that he allows us and allows our faith to be refined by fire. But he will never allow us to be delivered over completely to that test, to that temptation. Instead of delivering us over, we ask him to deliver us from evil. And that's the second part of this petition. We ask God to deliver us from the evil. And that's another way to translate this word. It's either evil, deliver us from evil, or deliver us from Satan, our enemy. Well, Calvin says that this petition should be translated this way, that we may not be led into temptation, deliver us from evil. He says that the meaning is we are conscious of our own weaknesses and desire to enjoy the protection of God, that we may remain impregnable against all the assaults of Satan. The fact is that we forget how truly weak we are. We forget that we are helpless. We are like children who see ourselves as being so strong and so able to stand. And yet at the end of the day, we grow weary and tired. We cannot stand for ourselves. Experiencing tests and trials show us not how strong we are, 
but how strong our Father is. Temptations show us how weak we truly are. They show us how much we need God. But aside from Him, we cannot stand. We cannot make it. We cannot endure. And so we and ourselves are as helpless as a small boat on the wide ocean. And the only hope we have is God, who is our safe harbor, who is our refuge. Not only does God forgive us of our sins, not only does he forgive our death, but he delivers us, not into temptation, he delivers us from temptation, he delivers us from the evil, the evil one. He delivers us from the great enemy of our souls. He is our strength and our shield. He is our mighty tower and our fortress. And no one and nothing can overpower him. That is why we pray this prayer. That is why we come before God with this petition. Well, let's look for a moment now uh, at the doxology. It's just a word about the doxology. Unless you're reading the King James Version, which some of you may be, you'll notice that the portion of this prayer, known as the doxology, is either in brackets or it has a footnote. It's in a footnote at the bottom of the page. And even the New King James Version, which keeps the doxology in on the page, it footnotes it. And it says that the most reliable text, the most reliable manuscripts don't have this in the Greek, uh, in the Greek New Testament. And that is simply because these earliest manuscripts in Greek, they don't contain it. They don't contain the doxology for thine is the glory and the power, and the power and the glory uh, forever. What this likely means is this phrase was not originally part of what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This is likely the case. But it was very common for Jewish prayers to end with words praising God. And that's what this is. And the words are very similar to the words David used when he uh, opened up his prayer in First Chronicles chapter 29. And so there's nothing inappropriate, there's nothing wrong with us praying these words when we say this prayer together. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer each month, we should know that there's nothing that contradicts God's word in any way. And we can comfortably, confidently pray this. Even this phrase, even this doxology, though it might not, probably was not included in the original Greek. And when we do so, when we pray this prayer, we pray the prayer that Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years have been praying. And so we join together with them, praising our God, using these words. Well, the Lord's Prayer is both a pattern for prayer, and it's one that we can pray. It's one that we can use in our prayers. It's one that we need to know. We need to know it so that we can use it, so that we can use it as a, a pattern. But whichever way we use it, we must use it sincerely. Our prayers must not be to help our own image. It must not be for people to see it and to think, wow, what a spiritual person that Joe is. It must not be mechanical and mindless like the pagans pray. We must pray these words, these petitions, with sincerity. Jesus said, when you pray. And the fact is that the Christian prays. And the Christian prays sincerely. 
If we are consistently insincere in our prayers, if we're consistently just offering up mindless prayers to the Lord, if the only time we pray is when we're out in public before a meal, then we're praying insincerely. We're not praying as a child of our Heavenly Father. We're not praying to talk to Him, to commune with Him. We're simply praying for show. We're simply praying by rote. Parents talk with their children. Children talk with their parents. God speaks to you through His Word, and He expects you, entreats you to speak to Him through prayer. And He has set us free by the power of His Spirit. He's, he's freed us from our bondage and enslavement to sin, to this great death, in part so that we may pray to Him. And so I encourage you, I encourage you to go before your Heavenly Father. Go into your closet and pray to Him. Seek Him out. Dive into His words. Hear His voice. And respond to Him in prayer. Our response to God's forgiveness of our sins, our response to His deliverance from evil, is to come to Him in prayer and to love Him as a child. And this is a privilege which is held only by the sons and the daughters of God Most High. And this privilege has been bought for you and for me by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so we must not neglect it, because it is a joyous privilege. And he invites each of us to you.